0: Hello and thank you for joining for another episode of Turkey Book Talk. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. In this podcast we hear from authors of newly released books on Turkey and the region give our Facebook page a like and or follow the Twitter account at Turkey Book Talk there are show notes and links at armstrongwilliam.wordpress.com and please do rate or review the podcast wherever you listen to it which helps more people find it remember if you haven't already do consider signing up to become a Turkey Book Talk member for exclusive extras and help us keep going joining our growing list of signed up members gets you transcripts in both English and Turkish of every interview published on Turkey Book Talk via email as soon as the episode is published you also get transcripts of the entire Turkey Book Talk archive which includes a number of extra interviews not previously published on the podcast. Members also get access to an exclusive discount deal, a whopping 35% off the cover price of books published in IB Taurus's extensive Turkey and Ottoman history category. IB Taurus, which is now part of Bloomsbury, has well over 400 books in its Turkey and Ottoman history series including both academic and general interest titles. Turkey Booktop members receive a special code for a 35% discount on books in that series including physical books, pre-orders and e-books. That's Last but not least, members also receive an archive of 231 book reviews written by myself covering various categories including Turkish and International Fiction and Poetry, History, Politics, Journalism, the Middle East and Europe. That archive was written over the course of 5 years and was previously available online but nowadays a Turkey Book Talk membership is the only way to access it. To become a member all you have to do is pledge a minimum of $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's official Patreon account. New episodes go out every two weeks so the monthly membership price is no more than $6. Of course, if you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then you'll certainly be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge that $3 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. Members only get charged when a new episode is published, so there are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now let's get on with our latest episode. In it, we speak to Toygar Sinan Baikan. He's an assistant professor at Kirk University and the author of The Justice and Development Party in Turkey, Populism, Personalism, Organization, which was published last year by Cambridge University Press. The book is based on in-depth interviews with over 50 members at various levels of Turkey's ruling party, giving an intimate glimpse at the AKP's internal organisational dynamics and how it benefits from the country's various socio-cultural divides. we talk about all that a bit later, but I started by asking Toygar Sinan Baikan to tell us first of all what he makes of the AKP's successful move to force a rerun of the Istanbul mayoral election after it narrowly lost to the main opposition's candidate Ekrem İmamoğlu on 31st of March.
1: Actually, this decision to rerun elections, there is a huge cost with regards to the legitimacy of the party. But at the same time, as you know, many commentators underlined, there was also a kind of economic cost in handing over the Istanbul municipality. So my view is that, you know, there were discussions just after the election. Probably these discussions started in the very night of the election. And affection of the party probably convinced Erdogan to run the election by demonstrating the costs of, you know, repeating the election and costs of handing over the uh, municipality to the Republican People's Party. And probably, you know, Erdogan thought the legitimacy cost is not that big compared to the economic cost of losing the municipality. Actually, the municipalities in Turkey are the main sources that the Turkish parties are based on when it comes to financing politics. And Istanbul municipality is huge. has almost endless resources to fund and to support political campaigns and political activities. So I think they had this dilemma since the end of the election. So on the one hand, they face to lose legitimacy, popular legitimacy, and on the other hand, they face to lose vast economic resources, which is the basis of the you know vast clientelistic networks of the Justice and Development Party. So they had these kinds of calculations, and they just took this risk to lose popular legitimacy. Actually, it was a kind of threshold for the Turkish politics because Erdogan has always had this huge claim regarding the sacredness, in a sense, of the the ballot box.
0: Uh, Do you have any predictions about uh, what's going to happen?
1: We are definitely in the gray zone now, so it's really hard to make predictions. I am sure, you know, they will do whatever they can in order to win the elections. This is why, you know, the, the opposition really need to be really careful. Now, what we see in Turkish politics is pure strategy now, pure political struggle uh, without institutions. So this means that the result will be decided by, you know, organizing numbers and defending ballot boxes and you know, bringing people to polling stations, pure strategy, without any institutional framework, without any legal framework. The institutional demise of Turkish judiciary has come to a tipping point. But my view is that the opposition in Turkey has gained a kind of enhanced organizational capacity in recent years. And the result in the 31st of March was actually the outcome of this organizational capacity. But as I said, there are no institutions to trust on so you have to trust on your organization you have to trust on your people and you have to trust on your strategic intelligence we are now in that kind of you know gray zone
0: there's another kind of wild card that probably won't come into play before the uh, Istanbul rerun, but in the coming weeks and months uh, is expected to, if not gain momentum, at least gain headlines. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is the long-awaited sort of breakaway from the AKP or rather reintroduction of certain figures from the past in a new kind of political form. Specifically, mm-hmm. we're talking about uh, Abdullah Gül, former president, and Ahmet Davutoğlu, former prime minister, and there's also talk about Ali Babajan, a former deputy prime minister. Uh, so there are these kind of formerly very heavy hitters, let's say, who were sort of plotting a political comeback, whether that's in one party or two parties, is still contradictory reports about that. Do you think that that introduction has any potential to change balances at all? Or do you think it's a completely quixotic endeavor that stands no chance of uh, really reshaping balances in the, in the AKP?
1: Uh, I, I think it may have a chance. These, these attempts may have a chance because of the nature of the Justice and Development Party, actually. Of course, you have this predominance of Erdogan within the party. And of course, it is a very personalistic entity based on widespread clientelistic networks. So there's no doubt on that. But I think this is only a part of the story regarding the Justice and Development Party. I mean, populism and personalism is, is only a part of the story. You also have these segments within the party, most of whom could be considered upper-class conservatives with, you know, kind of ideological approach, kind of, in a sense, bookish approach to politics. Some people within the party, I mean, they are really, you know, committed to these, you know, ideological narratives. It could be Islamism. It could be post-Islamism. It could be conservative democracy. And these segments within the party are not happy with the know. direction the party took since, like, you know, 2010. They are really unhappy with the trajectory. Erdogan is, of course, very important. He has this direct appeal to the urban poor and low income and, you know, poorly educated masses. But we also see a kind of sociological change in Turkey, you know, since 2010, 2011, particularly in metropolitan areas like, you know, Istanbul and Ankara. And even people, you know, in strongholds of the justice sentiment. Development parties such as you know Kaiser and Konya, you know upper middle classes in these kind of contexts, they are really not happy with this kind of you know personalistic rule and you know its disregard for legal procedures. So I think this kind of social segments between the justice and development party may welcome these these attempts by you know Dautolu or Babajan or Abdullah Gül. In this sense, I think they may attract a portion of the conservative voters. Uh, it is a possibility. I think
0: there's one thing I think that some people have um, maybe miss, or, or, or maybe they're misreading the sense that uh, any new party that comes out will automatically be like a challenge or an opposition party. I think it's a bit of a misunderstanding. It seems to me like, you know, a new party that may merge could actually be a kind of complement in a way to the AKP and in theory work as in a kind of coalition and see its mission as being to maybe bring it back around to the way that they want it or to reopen the doors to certain political characters so rather than it being a kind of big challenge or an opposition sure, to Erdogan sure. it would be more of a almost idealistic attempt to maybe exert pressure on it or serve as a kind of vehicle through which certain characters can re-enter the political fray at the expense of other ones who have come in in recent years
1: I, I certainly agree with you. It, it may function as a kind of check and balance mechanism within the you know, conservative camp. So it may, as as you nicely explained, it may function as a kind of check and balances within the traditions.
0: Now, uh, moving on to your book called The Justice and Development Party in Turkey, Populism, Personalism and Organization. For that book, uh, you conducted interviews with AKP members across the country, including administrators, uh, mostly at uh, lower and mid-ranking positions. What was the research process like and what were some of the difficulties that you faced?
1: As you can imagine, that there, there were lots of difficulties, of course, and my timing really didn't help because I started to conduct all these interviews just before the local elections in two thousand fourteen. Just after, the, you know, these corruption probes, corruption investigations um, by you know, Gulen's prosecutors. So there was this, you know, very tricky timing too. And it's not just about you know difficulties we have in Turkey, but it's about the impact of populism as well. So. Uh, The main impact of populism is bifurcation, a kind of polarization and isolation between two camps of society. And this raises some impediments for researchers. You know, it stops you to go to these people and speak to them, I mean, particularly from the perspective of kind of, you know, liberal, left-leaning academic positions. This is also why I think interviewing interviewing people, interviewing political activists of the Justice and Development Party was so important for me. Because, you know, when when you don't go and when you don't see them within the, you know, context of their political activities, when you don't see them, you know, when you don't talk to them, you just feed all these, you know, bias and all these prejudices regarding the other sides, particularly in such settings, uh, which is really polarized and which is really divided. It is one thing to speak to these people and it is another thing to sit, you know, in front of your table and write about all these you know, ideas and perhaps prejudices uh, regarding the other side.
0: And uh, you specifically explore in the book what you call a high versus low framework to explore mm-hmm. modern Turkish history. And you situate the uh, party within this framework. You know, central to this is the importance of the educational divide, but it's also a wider thing. I wonder if you could just talk about this, tease this out, you know, describe what you mean by this high low framework and why it makes more sense than the more kind of perhaps commonly referred to religious secular divide or right left divide.
1: Oh. I think, I think it's misleading to understand Turkish political landscape simply through the lenses provided by left-right or secular-religious religi- divide. I think that the, the issue is much broader than the secular-religious divide. I do not claim that it is, you know, meaningless. I do not claim that we do not have an issue uh, regarding the role of religion in public life. But I think this is part of a broader story regarding the social divisions in Turkey. And ultimately... What the whites and what is politically effective is you know sociocultural differences your manners your attitudes in public the taste you revealed in public religion is a dimension of sociocultural attitudes but this is only a dimension so you have a broader the white broader struggle here. this is why you know most of the time Turkish politics is perceived as a kind of clash between lifestyles and religion and uh, on the other hand secular attitudes are part parts of this wider divide. But uh, actually, this is, this is how the Turkish political landscape is constructed. It's constructed on all these, you know, broader interactions across the society. This is not really only about religion. It is, it is about some, uh, something broader, something related to, you know, cultural capital of, of people uh, on the grounds.
0: It, as I was reading, it made me think actually that there's, it's, it's interesting to reflect on the the current climate in this context because after the local election and before the local election, actually while the campaign was going on, anybody who's sort of been observing the kind of internal criticism really within the AKP or from conservatives towards the AKP or among people who are sympathetic to it but are kind of disillusioned, some of those critiques have actually focused on the fact that the party has really in the last few years overemphasized the kind of quote low strategies, you know, conspiracy theories, paranoia, a kind of glorification of this kind of lack of refinement, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the sense, like the old identity, I suppose, of the AKP is symbolized by that, you know, people who are disillusioned with it are now saying, you know, what happened? We weren't always like that. That's that's what the argument says. And I suppose you can fit that into this framework. You know, now the criticism from within the party even is the fact that this low strategy, as you mm-hmm. describe it, is is being overemphasized these days. Yeah
1: definitely. Actually, all these developments could be considered the extension of this, you know, low populist style. As I said, we, we really need a kind of balanced view of the justice and development part and phenomenon of populism. On the one hand, it has this inclusive function, uh, you know, which articulates all these, you know, really underprivileged and disadvantaged populations and social segments to the political system. But on the other hand, it has a kind of, you know, poisonous impact on public discussion by polarizing and by reducing quality of deliberation through implementing divisive and so to say, you know, lumpen public figures in the media.
0: Yes, and often people say that this style problem has damaged the party electorally. They argue that But I think it's also perhaps worth taking a step back. We can also argue that, uh, you know, the AKP, despite its setback in the recent local election, it remains by far the most popular party in the country. And um, I actually think that these tactics, this kind of emphasis of the low style, have actually, to a large degree, helped consolidate the party's voters, you know, amid this economic crisis. Without this kind of style, perhaps the party would have lost even more votes. So the fact that it's managed to really maintain its dominance is, to a large degree helped by the fact that it's got this kind of low style these days, I suppose.
1: Definitely, definitely. I think so. I think so. When you use this, you know, populist script, it actually helps you to construct stories regarding real problems. On the one hand, there is this, you know, native and national popular party in the government, and on the other hand, there is this conspiring elites and international powerholders. In that sense, it is very simple to explain and ma- uh, manipulate the public opinion through these kind of populist narratives, populist scripts, and. As long as you can convey this, this story through a convincing populist style, its electoral benefits are evident. It really works in favor of the Justice and Development Party and people who are arguing that, you know, populist style and populist narrative or populist discourse is reducing the party's electoral fortunes cannot see the real impact of this narrative and style. Actually, it is helping the party despite ongoing, you know, economic, political, social and international Crisis. So it's actually a winning strategy combined with the organizational and clientelistic linkages that has been constructed throughout the Justice and Development Party uh, rule.
0: Uh, Now, just going on to the research In the book uh, a bit deeper You talk about how uh, the AKP Is really far more organised than any other Parties at the moment in Turkey And it has Mm -hmm. been for years On the kind of neighbourhood, district, provincial, national level It's Mm -hmm. an extremely intricate And tightly organised, tightly controlled Structure, uh, really incomparable With anything else uh, in the country And there's also a a massive membership Organisation, I mean some people claim That there's 9 million members of Mm -hmm. the AKP In Turkey, which is, you know an enormous part of the population just talk about the, the structure you know how organized the AKP is as a party you know and why that emerged what its roots were in the uh, Islamist parties that existed really before the AKP and prepared the ground i suppose for the kind of mass mobilization right. that came along with the AKP after 2002
1: Uh, Actually, to a great extent, the Justice and Development Party uh, has inherited the organizational culture uh, of its predecessor, the Welfare Party and the National View Movement in general. So in the National View Movement and particularly in the Welfare Party, there was this strong emphasis on building a robust and massive organization. The main rationale behind this organizational strategy was that during the 1990s, the parties of the National View tradition, the welfare party, were actually lacking financial resources and a kind of grip over media. So Arbakan's strategy during 1990s uh, was that actually the party tried to you know compensate uh, their lack of grip over media and their lack of financial resources by constructing this massive organization. It had to be organized like that because there was very powerful enemies who were located in the you know state institutions and and in order to you know counterbalance these elites you had to organize like you know like a mass party and they were also lacking financial resources so they actually could not use the media in the way like the uh, motherland party uh, was using it they uh, did not access to state resources so the only viable strategy during the 1990s was constructing this massive organization and uh, the justice and development party actually inherited this kind of strategic approach to organization. They actually organized in line with this previous tradition. But in my book, I argue that this is only a part of the story. There is another legacy that the Justice and Development Party has inherited from 1990s. It was the legacy of Motherland Party. So when the Welfare Party was organizing this uh, massive membership organization, the Motherland Party was actually investing in a kind of media-oriented and clientelistic strategy. The Motherland Party leadership during 1990s and 1980s were actually aware of the importance of, you know, media appeals. And in my book, I also argue that the Justice and Development Party inherited this strategic legacy as well. So uh, when they founded the party in the beginning of 2000, they were actually not simply relying on the organizations. The elite of the party uh, had this understanding that, you know, media is important because during the 1990s, the Welfare Party actually couldn't establish a grip over media. And they suffered towards the end of 1990s when the, you know, establishment elite started a kind of counterattack to the mobilize, Islamic mobilization. So actually, the Justice and Development Party has learned very important lessons from the politics of 1990s. So what they did during 2000s is they combined, you know, mass membership, strategy of the welfare party with the media-oriented and clientelistic strategies of the motherland party. Because neither of these strategies alone is sufficient for establishing a kind of predominance in Turkish politics. This is why, you know, they have combined these two legacies, these two inheritances. On the one hand, they have this very tight grip over media and they also, you know, engage in clientelistic strategies. But on the other hand, they have a robust and a very strong mass membership organization, which has penetrated into the smallest corners of the country. In order to successfully engage with this kind of political environment, you, you need certain features of both of these models.
0: And also the AKP attaches huge importance to public opinion surveys. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's got this sophisticated organization uh, that we talk about there, but uh, this organization on the street level also allows it to be in much more direct contact with the grassroots Mm -hmm. and many other parties. And really that's, uh, again, incomparable with with many other political structures in Turkey. Just talk about that, you know, how do they conduct this opinion polling? I mean, uh, they really do uh, shift the the messages uh, and the campaigning according to what they get from the ground and uh maybe uh the, the, there's some suggestions that this polling is not having the same effect as it used to uh, as can be seen in the recent local election results people suggesting that the polling isn't quite as effective as it used to be even erdogan himself before the before the election said that he didn't even believe in opinion polls mm-hmm. anymore uh, just talk about that the importance of public opinion polling and why that distinguishes the akp from many other parties
1: Yeah, I I think it's extremely important. But I also observe that, you know, many other parties in Turkey are are using these techniques, uh, these political marketing techniques. What differentiates the Justice and Development Party is that I think they very systematically, you know, deploy these techniques. They really, you know, rely on this. And actually, we we, we can consider it as a feature of their populist kind of approach to politics uh, because they really do, you know, what people want So they go to these people, they use public opinion surveys, they ask people's inclinations, and they actually change and transform the party policies according to the, you know, inclinations within the public. But recently, as you said, Erdogan a couple of times argued that, you know, he was not trusting public opinion surveys, but I am sure he's still conducting this, and the party still conducts public opinion surveys, and they really deploy these, these techniques and instruments before Important decision-making processes. So you apply political marketing techniques. You use media to to manipulate and restructure, reshape public opinion. But at the same time, you have the mass organization. So these people go to slums of big cities. These people go to the you know low-income, low-income districts, and they convince the people. And they also get feedback from these people. So public opinion sur- surveys and political marketing techniques is actually complemented by a rather more conventional of organization of dynamics as well.
0: Now uh, one of the key innovations That a lot of people have noted as well And as you do uh, in your book Is the use of the AKP's uh, women's branches This was really Mm -hmm. very crucial uh, In the AKP's organisation And it was really pioneering as well actually um, The way that the AKP Again building on some of its predecessors In the 1990s Really mobilised women's groups To spread the message And uh, to really build a presence uh, At the neighbourhood level Just talk really about how the AKP's use of women branches was really pioneering in turkey at the time uh, really in in the early years of the akp
1: Actually during 1990s during 1980s other parties had you know women branches uh, for instance the Motherland Party uh, had this women's woman's branches called Papatyalar probably you know it and uh, the Welfare Party actually in the middle of 1990s introduced a kind of women's branches Hanımlar Konseyi but they were not really as effective as the women's branches of the Justice and Development Party so the uh, women's branches in the Justice and Development party is much more effective and it is very carefully designed to appeal and penetrate into the low-income households. So uh, the rationale behind the, you know, organization of women's branches is that, uh, you know, there are lots of housewives in Turkey, I mean. These these women are not working, they are usually not in the public space in the sense that, you know, they are not going to, the, you know, uh, work or they are not going to coffee houses and canvassing in these houses, so four teams comprised of men is almost impossible. So, in this sense, women's branches has a very crucial role. So, conversing groups consisting of women are going to, do, you know, low-income uh, households in the daytime and they speak to these women and uh, one of my interviews actually was like, you know, telling me that on the basis of the, you know, canvassing activities, they started to realize that, you know, in the households, women and men sometimes were, you know, voting differently. I mean, so like, you know, women in the poor neighborhoods uh, were voting to the Justice and Development Party, uh, and men, you know, could vote for different parties. So actually, it, in a sense, broke the patriarchal nature of voting behavior in Turkey through directly appealing to women through a very active woman's branches.
0: And um, again, you referred throughout the book to this, but uh, talk a little bit about how uh, important Erdogan has been as a character, sort of unifying the AKP and keeping it intact, really. I mean, uh, there's been a lot of talk about how over the years the party has just become a, a one man show. But Mm -hmm. um, even when the AKP was founded in 2001, Mm -hmm. when it was more of a kind of coalition of different names, Erdogan was still really the number one man uh, even then. But just explain the importance of Erdogan over the years for the AKP and, and how it's changed.
1: As you said at the beginning, you know, he was one among many others, you know, very influential and high-profile figures. But even at that time, you know, he was not an ordinary member of a ruling elite. So he was, he was kind of prominent, uh, even at the very beginning. And uh, he had this very strong public image, which appeals to the, you know, low-income constituencies across Turkey. But the point that I make in the book is that it's not just about his image and it's not just about his populist style, but his grip over the Justice and Development Party organization is actually based on his organization of skills as well. So this is a point that is usually underemphasized by research on Justice and Development Party and studies on Erdogan in himself. He's not simply a populist like Trump or Berlusconi, who has a telegenic and very convincing populist style and appeal. He is also a very successful organizational man, very hard-working organizational man. And uh, when compared to these contemporary populist figures like, you know, Berlusconi, Trump, and you know other figures uh, like Thaksin in Thailand, uh, he's actually very different in the sense that his rise as a politician is not based on, you know, money or financial resources or his intellectual qualities or whatever I mean. Let me consider how he has risen to prominence and to power in Turkey. Actually, this is based on a kind of organizational activity. So, he's first and foremost an organization man. And he's still doing same things. Like, he's having all these, you know, istişare the consultation meetings. So, he's still, you know, frequently meeting with provincial chairs of the party. And, of course, he is in the middle of candidate selection processes of the party. So, I think this differentiates him from a series of populist leaders across the world I mean he's like you know he's really pushing hard to keep this organization together and this is this is a kind of you know underemphasized uh, dynamic in the analysis and uh, studies on the Justice and Development Party
0: Yeah, you write in the book uh, this very illustrative example, uh, Yelchin Akdoğan, who's a uh, former AKP MP, I think he might still be an AKP MP at the moment, but he's not um, as foregrounded as he used to be. He used to be in the cabinet, used to be quite a senior figure, and uh, he still has a column in, uh, and he's still active in the party. But uh, Mm -hmm. there's these two examples that you give that kind of illustrate the transformation, really, uh, of the AKP uh, under Erdogan. It's uh, in 2004, he wrote this book uh, called, uh, in translation, the act. Party and Conservative Democracy, which Mm -hmm. really was a very kind of short, almost uh, pamphlet-like book, outlining the worldview of the party, which almost heralded a kind of post-Islamist perspective. It was very much in vogue at the time, you know, saying, you know, this is a conservative democratic party, and it's a kind of coalition of different groups. From you know liberals to right wingers, and uh, you know that really summed up the party at that point, or what the party said it was. But mm-hmm. by 2017, uh, he was writing a book uh, that was completely different and illustrated these changes. It was called *The Leader: Political mm-hmm. Leadership and Erdogan, which is basically this almost hagiography of uh, of the president. It sort of illustrates the changes that that have become obvious uh, over those those years, I suppose.
1: Yeah, yeah, certainly. So we actually see a a shift from a rather more, you know, programmatic and let's say ideologically based party to a much more, you know, populist and clientelistic entity. I mean, at the beginning, there was this, you know, endeavor to construct a kind of party identity. But recently, this attempt is, you know, completely abandoned. And we now see that the organization is really, about Erdogan's own vision and own desires but as i said even in, even at the beginning he was at the center of the organization but as as, as you have rightly highlighted there was a, there was an attempt to you know construct a party identity as well but the main change today is that you know now now all these discussions regarding conservative democracy regarding a kind of liberal islamic attitude it's now completely you know abandoned it's completely gone now so what what you have is Erdogan and his populist uh, nativist and nationalist appeal with the masses
0: uh, and now let's project forward to conclude. I mean, um, we're talking a couple of weeks or three weeks after the uh, the local election. Uh, the AKP, as we mentioned, suffered a bit of a blow in the major metropolitan cities, uh, including Ankara and Istanbul. And um, there's a sense among people both inside and outside the party that in the last few years, some of these structures that we're talking about, the uh, neighborhood organization, the polling, the, the really tight... Uh, arrangements within the party. They've all—they've started to fray a little bit. There's mm-hmm. a sense of maybe a lack of direction. Just talk about how you see things going forward. Do you also recognize this general trend that the AKP is becoming maybe less of a potent political force? And would you associate that with the effect of the presidential system? Maybe political parties generally are not as important as they were before. And um, this is just part of a much broader trend in Turkish politics.
1: Regardless sort of the presidential system, I think party organizations in Turkey and political parties would still be important because politics in Turkey is not just really about high ranking top politicians and the struggles between them on the ideological and discursive basis, but it is also about clientelistic networks and relations. And in order to run all these clientelistic networks, you really uh, need strong and penetrating Think party organizations. This is why I think party organizations would not be affected by the presidential system. I think they will uh, remain as they are, because as I said, they have this clientelistic function. Actually, all these clientelistic relations are based on, particularly in the Justice and Development Party, on the capabilities of the party organization. So this is why party organization is still a very important uh, thing for Erdogan. Now there are analysis regarding the Justice and Development Party party arguing that, you know, there is no organization anymore, there is no, you know, party anymore, it's only urban. But the nature of this political movement, its current shape, its current form, actually not, is not compatible with this kind of analysis, because it is increasingly uh, relying on clientelistic relations, and as you rely on clientelistic relations, you really need, you know, uh, an organization to, to distribute all of these, you know, uh, benefits that come from from uh, your position in power. So this is why I think organizations, party organizations and political parties would remain as an important dimension of party politics in Turkey or political conflicts in Turkey. Yeah.
0: That was Toygar Sinan Baikan. Many thanks to him. Remember to consider signing up as a Turkey Book Talk member if you enjoy the podcast and want to help support it. Membership gets you access to that special 35% discount on Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury, transcripts in English and Turkish of every interview as it's published, transcripts of the entire Turkey Book Talk archive and access to an archive of 231 book reviews written by me covering Turkish history and politics, literature and various other things. To become a member and get all that, just pledge a minute minimum of three dollars per episode via turkey book talk's official patreon account also do please rate or review turkey book talk on itunes or whatever podcast platform you use follow via twitter or like the facebook page to stay fully updated with new episodes and you can tell me what you think sending any recommendations feedback or abuse to William John Armstrong at gmail.com but until the next episode of turkey book talk in a couple of weeks thank you very much for listening